Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the Birth Lounge Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by my good friend, Dr. Sarah Leahy, who is also the founder of Birth Uprising, and she's had an unassisted birth, which I know, like, ooh, unassisted birth, oh my God. Um, I'm so excited to dive into this topic. I fully believe in the entire spectrum of unbiased care, and that a lot of times includes unassisted birth. This is including the people who choose to birth outside of the hospital um, or maybe even without medical tenants at all. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Can we start off with A, the definition of unassisted birth and B, what made you decide that you wanted to do this for yourself? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, So unassisted birth just means a birth without a medical attendant. So no midwife, no OB. Uh, you. Some people have a doula, but they will be some, a, a doula is not a medical attendant. A doula is uh, someone who supports you through your labor and birth. But most people who have an unassisted birth, they have nobody else there. That can mean it's just them or it's just them and their partner. Their kids might be there, but they don't have a medical attendant. Uh, for me, the reason I decided this was now looking back, I can see more clearly parts of why I chose this, which I'll go into that I didn't realize at the time, but at the time I had had a C-section with my first, which was totally unnecessary, very traumatic, caused me two years of PTSD and depression and anxiety. And so I knew immediately after having him that my next birth had to be different. And so when I found out I was pregnant, I actually did hire a home birth midwife And it just did not go well with that particular midwife. And I ended up uh, firing her at about 17 weeks or so. Um, And I couldn't find somebody else. I wasn't getting any responses from any of the midwives in the area. I don't know if they just weren't getting my emails or what, but it made me think to myself, well, what do I have to do? Deliver in air quotes, because no one's delivering your baby, you're birthing it this baby on my own. And it was like a cartoon light bulb went over my head. And I thought, well, why couldn't I? And then I thought, do other women do this? And so I started looking into it. And it is a thing. It's called unassisted birth or free birth. And the movement is kind of growing. Um, I think in part, what I was talking about a second ago is 
because of birth trauma. So I think a lot of women, they're, they're traumatized by their experience, most of them in the hospital, because most women give birth in the hospital and they don't trust anybody. They don't trust, you know, even someone who might be at their home with them. They might not even trust them to be around at the time because of what happened to them previously. Uh, or they may trust a midwife to be at their home, but they may not be able to afford it because it may be something that they have to pay cash for and they need to use their insurance. So that lack of trust and that initial birth trauma, I feel, has resulted in uh, this the movement of just DIY birth growing. And so that's why I chose that. Um, because I figured if I can't find somebody else to be here with me at my home, I am not going to a hospital. I know exactly what's going to happen to me. I've had a C-section. I was under OB care at the time, uh, but I, I had the plan to not be there for the birth. And so the very first vis- visit I had at eight weeks, they talked to me about uh, signing a consent form from anesthesia. I was like, I'm eight weeks pregnant. <laughs> like this makes no sense. And talking about, oh, the doctor might want to do a repeat C-section if the baby's too big or if this or if that. And I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. I just, I didn't want to fight with anyone. I was perfectly healthy. There was nothing wrong with me or my baby. I went through all of the some things that people say, oh, what if something happens? I didn't just say, what if something happens? I made a list of what those things were. And I researched them and I listened to other women's stories and I looked up peer reviewed journal papers and really got the actual numbers and what the actual risks were. And then from there determined, you know, was I part of that at risk population? What would I do to prevent it? What could I do if it happened at home? And what was my backup plan? And so I didn't go into it without thinking. I, I really researched it and truly believe that it was my best choice at the time. Yeah. Okay. So you couldn't find other providers and kind of took the attitude of like, why force it? Why force something that's not kind of naturally fallen into place when I already have everything I need? really to birth my baby, except the like logistical education, which, you know, you found easily, were you able to find the things easily on what the internet or where did you access the information that helped you understand the data and, and really question those, like, what if something happens? And just by the way, like Something's happened in the hospital too, like all yeah. the time. We cause a lot of something to happen at right. the hospital. So, um, you know, really question where your safety net lies. Is it really that you don't think something's going to happen at the hospital or that you just trust the hospital more than you trust yourself to take care of it? And then how can you kind of balance that? How can you tip the scales to be in your favor where you trust yourself? So how did you do that? So I felt like, being in the hospital, I was more likely to have something happen because the best chance for me to have a vaginal birth after a cesarean was to be completely left alone. My, I had less likelihood of uterine rupture, of hemorrhage, of anything happened to the baby. If I was just left alone, if I went into spontaneous labor, if no one augmented it with Pitocin, if I was allowed to have freedom of movement, if I had as much time as I needed and I wasn't pressured, if I was relaxed, And I knew that I wasn't going to get those things in the hospital. And I knew that I could do those things at home. 
Um, so I chose to do my research in a lot of different areas, but I did, I did a lot of it on PubMed, which is, you know, you can read peer reviewed papers there. Um, and so I would get some of the topics that I was interested in, like postpartum hemorrhage or um, nuchal cord. I did a lot on nuchal cord or, um, you know, shoulder dystocia. shoulder dystocia and what, what caused these things? How common were they really? Um, and a lot of these things, I think the things that you worry about happening the some things in a hospital setting, like you said, they're caused by things that have been done to the person that's in the hospital and, but they won't acknowledge that. So you have to take even what you find that's, you know, peer reviewed research with a grain of salt, because they don't a lot of times give you the backstory of these people, you know, some, someone with an 11 pound baby might've had shoulder dystocia, but did they have an epidural? Were they laying on their back? Were they allowed to move around? Did anybody that worked there know any maneuvers to help the baby, you know, turn and get out properly? Probably, you know, all of those things that were against them, they didn't even put in the paper. So, because they're considered normal. And so they think, oh, why even mention it? So I did a lot of my research there. I read some books. Um, I don't remember which ones because I have three children and I'm very tired. <laughs> but I read some books uh, by, you know, OBs or, uh, or midwives, people that had seen a lot and done a lot, um, researchers. Uh, and it really helped me. The more I learned, the less I was worried about any of it. Like uterine rupture, for example, everyone says, you know, it's super dangerous. You know, you should be really worried if you've had a C-section because your uterus could just rip apart and everyone dies. And uterine rupture, they say, oh, you have, uh, they round up to about 1% usually, right? They say, oh, you have a 1% chance on average. We have a 99% chance that you won't rupture. But the truth is it's really 0.4 to 0.7%. So it's even lower than that. And of those cases, they tell you, oh, you could rupture. But what happens if you rupture? What's considered a rupture? Does everyone die? Do you lose the baby for sure if you're one of those people who, and the answer is no. There's another study on that subset of people that only 6% of that 0.4 to 0.7% actually have catastrophic results where someone is lost, like you lose your baby. And that's a really small number. So, and how many of those people had Pitocin? I was just about to ask how many of those people actually were never destined to have that type of birth story, but because of interventions the hospital did, or we humans did, we messed it up. Right. And they don't, they don't mention that stuff. Cause I looked, they don't differentiate between in those studies, women who went into spontaneous labor and those who were induced or those who were augmented, it wasn't mentioned. So how much of that played a role? Why would they? Why would right. they mention that? They wouldn't say, because right. because then someone might not use it. <laughs> we don't want to give the women the control. What, no. Why would we mention that? <laughs> they get their periods. <laughs> they're gonna, they're gonna make bad, they have hormones and they're going to make bad decisions. So <laughs> I love it. You got to love it. You got to laugh at it. So you don't like cry every day. So you don't rage. <laughs> oh, my. oh my goodness. Okay. So what made you decide to birth in the hospital the first time? Just because that was the norm. That's what you, you knew. That's what people did. You, you didn't question the status quo. Is that it? 
Oh, I questioned it all. No. So I actually, yes, I did not listen to myself. So I had always wanted to give birth at home and I was actually pregnant before my first son. My first uh, was a miscarriage. And so I had actually hired a home birth midwife for that, but then I had a missed miscarriage. And so my choices were, you know, just wait it out, let my body expel everything on its own, or I could have a DNC or I could take, they gave me Cytotec. And so I chose to take Cytotec at home and get everything out. Uh, It was not a great process, but I will say, so I went to my OB because I had been going to, she was my, my gynecologist, which also an OB and they were super nice and they helped me through it. And after that, I didn't get pregnant again for a while. And so I was 33, I think, coming up on 34. And I knew if I wanted to have multiple children, I didn't really want to wait if I didn't have to. So I did IUI and I did two rounds of that intrauterine insemination and got pregnant with my son on the second round. So because now I had had this medicalized conception and I had these people who were truly nice to me help me through that, I stuck with them. But I kid you not when I say there was a little voice in the back of my head, like a, like when you see someone with like an angel and a devil on their shoulders saying, you're going to have a C-section if you go to the hospital. And I was like, oh, you shut up. That's not true. I'll be fine. But I decided to go to the hospital because I was, I was right down the street from Newton Wellesley, which is a, you know, a good hospital around here. My insurance covered everything. And we had just started our practice and we had no money. And I thought, I felt almost selfish taking that, you know, couple thousand dollars and putting it towards this when there was a hospital five minutes away. And that's, that was my whole downfall because there was nothing wrong with me and a perfectly healthy pregnancy. There was nothing wrong with my labor. It was just, oh, you've been in labor this long. Do you want, oh, how about we try this? Oh, how, and they just constantly would ask the same things. And on the fifth or sixth time, I'd say, fine, fine. And they'd break me down and they think they're helping. They don't realize that they're causing the issue. No one was overtly mean or like forceful or physically abusive or verbally abusive, which does happen a lot, but uh, they were just doing their job, trying to move things along by doing stuff to me. And there was, my baby wasn't in distress. I wasn't in distress. There was no need for the surgery. Um, it was just taking too long. And eventually I, I agreed to it because I was like, well, I've never given birth before. You know, I'm feeling not confident anymore. Uh, if you think that this is just not going to work out, I'm going to trust you. And I did, you know, so I had, I had planned to be at home, but for, you know, financial and then also kind of fear. I suppose, based reasons after losing that first baby, uh, chose to be in the hospital. So, I mean, and in hindsight, I wouldn't take it back because I learned a lot from, I, like, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. If I had only had home births, I wouldn't know how terrible it is, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but now I know in comparison how terrible it is. So let's, let's talk about that beating down, wearing down of patients because you, you just like hound them to death basically, or you slowly rob them of all of their confidence in their body. Mm-hmm. And the caveat there, the irony, 
is that they truly believe they're doing something good. Mm -hmm. I know. So they, I think that's the hardest part for a lot of workers, hospital workers to grasp is that what they were taught is not true. And they, they're actually causing more harm than good. Um, They're taught to manage people. So outside of uh, birth, anybody in the hospital, they want to do stuff to you. You come in, you need help. I'm going to do something. I'm going to give you a medication. I'm going to give you fluids. I'm going to do a procedure because I'm, you're here for my help and I need to do something to make you better. When it comes to birth, most people just need to be left alone um, and supported and given the things that they need so that they know that they're safe. They know that they're cared for. They know that they're, um, they're being supported in their choices and that they can get through it in the way that they want, whatever that means. Um, but that's not what you get. It's a kind of a one size fits all from the minute you find out you're pregnant. You know, you come in at eight weeks, we're doing an ultrasound. Why? Because that's what we do. At this point, we're doing another ultrasound. Why? Because that's what we do. You know, at this point, you have to do the gestational diabetes screen. Why? Because that's what we do. It's not about your risk level. It's just what we do. <laughs> and so everybody kind of gets the same thing. And then when you get to the hospital, it's the same. And it really depends on the nurses too. I'm sure you know well that you have no idea who's going to be on, on staff. You cannot possibly know. Even if you know all the 15 OBs in your practice, one of them shows up and you've met them twice. You can't know who the nurses are. You don't know when they went to school, where they went to school, what their life experiences. All of that plays into how they're going to treat you as a patient. And so they think that they're helping by doing stuff, not realizing what they're doing is causing harm. I think partially because there's a disconnect when it comes to what happens in the hospital. They think they helped you. Look, you didn't die. The baby didn't die. Look, everyone's safe. Everyone's healthy. You leave and you never see those people again. And you have no way of telling them you caused me harm. You, unless you file a formal complaint, even then they might not know, might get squashed, but they have no way of knowing what they're doing is harming people. They have no way of knowing that they should change their practices. They have, there's like, there's no follow-up, you know, like you buy a pair of shoes off of Amazon and you rate it. And people are like, I don't want that shoe. It looks really terrible. Everybody said it fell apart. But if you, you can't do that with hospital staff and you can't possibly know, there's no incentive to get better. There's no incentive to learn because they're doing what they were told. They're getting their paycheck and they think that they're helping. And even your OB, you, what do you see them one more time at six weeks postpartum? Like, and, and you we're all taught to put on a brave face and like not let you don't want anyone to know you're having a hard time. You want to be seen as a good mother. You want to be seen as handling it. And then you go into your six-week appointment and you might lie on that screen they do. That's one page to see if you're depressed. I probably did because they thought that I was fine. And then I left and then that's it. When do I see you again for a checkup in like six months? What about in the interim? What if I need help? It's just all garbage. (laughs) That's the bottom line. So my question is, is there anyone out there that had a baby in a pandemic that doesn't have a little low-lying depression? Like, do those people exist or are all parents like, what is happening? Me, because I stayed home. (laughs) I had a baby in December, 2020. And I'll tell, and my care was exactly the same as it would have been 
if there wasn't a pandemic and my birth was exactly the same as it would have been if there wasn't a pandemic because I stayed home because I midwives who practice, you know, on their own, they don't have the same rules and regulations that a hospital has right now. And when it comes to the birth, same thing, you're not going into a hospital full of hundreds of people and you're at your own house. So you can still have the things that you want. It's, it, it made no difference to my birth because I stayed home, but for everybody else who's in the hospital right now, it's things not are bad. good. Yeah. Things are bad. Yeah. Things are bad. Not good out there. Yeah. Okay. Quick question about something that you touched on earlier is in your unassisted birth for prenatal care, you were going to see your gynecologist. How come? What was the importance of getting um, prenatal care for you and then kind of ghosting during the birth? So I started off, I went to that OB um, right when I found out I was pregnant just to confirm the pregnancy, which now in hindsight, I'm like, you're going to, you're going to draw blood, but, or, or do an ultrasound. It was really unnecessary because I could pee on a stick, which I did do, but I went there, switched to the home birth midwife that I ended up firing. Um, and then was like, now what do I do? I'll just go back. So I went back not because I really felt I needed the care because it wasn't really care, um, to me, it was, you know, it was a standard set of procedures that they were following. They didn't really know me or care what happened. Um, I did it because I knew I was going to birth unassisted and uh, basically to cover my ass. Um, because I know I've heard of women who, you know, go outside of the, the norm and they decide to, even if you're in the hospital, make different decisions than what's recommended by the hospital staff and they call child protective services on you. And so I wanted there to be a record from somebody other than me of what, that I had had prenatal care. Um, Because now in hindsight, you can do your own prenatal care if you want. I mean, the people who are doing these things, they're, they're, most of them are medical technicians that don't, they don't have like this high level degree where they weigh you, they take your blood pressure, you pee on a stick, you can do it all at home. Um, If you need further assistance, you can ask. If you need an ultrasound, you can get one. You know, it's, it's not something that you're incapable of, but I just, it was the first time I had thought to do this. And so I just went with it and I wasn't sure what I would do at the end. Um, I ended up telling them, that I was transferring my care, uh, cause I was to myself. I just didn't tell them where. And they kept saying, oh, we'll fax it. We'll just fax it over. Just give us a number. And I was like, no, 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 just, uh, could you just print that out? I'll just take the folder thing. And so I, I just left. Um, and the reason I actually even asked for my records was because they harassed me. Um, I canceled an appointment. I wasn't sure, like I said, how I go about it at the end. Cause I knew I just wasn't going to show up to the hospital. But what ended up happening was we had, I had an appointment, but our refrigerator was leaking and the repairman had to come at like that exact same day and time, you know, cause you can only get like one appointment per month with the repair guy, you can't miss it. And so I was like, well, I'm gonna have to cancel my appointment. And so I canceled and then I was like, why would I reschedule? You know, I was like 37 weeks or something. 
Um, Cause I know I'm not, they're just going to keep talking about induction and putting a just in case uh, C-section on the schedule. And you know this, and you know that and we're just going to try to worry you. And I was like, I just don't want to have those conversations because I'm not doing what you want me to do. And so I just didn't go back, but so they called me and left a message and said, oh, we, you, we missed you at your appointment. Just call us back. And then they called again. Oh, you, you know, we, we still haven't seen you. Uh, we're getting worried. Call us back. Then they sent me an email. Then they sent me a letter in the regular mail. And I was like, these people are going to show up on my doorstep. I better go get my notes. And so I showed up and got my notes and then they left me alone. But I was like, it was getting progressively more aggressive. Like, so I'm a chiropractor. My husband's a chiropractor. I've been home with the kids since my first son was born. He's five. My husband takes care of the practice. But if somebody canceled on us, we might call them and say, hey, like, are you okay? Do you want to reschedule? We're not calling you eight times. I'm not sending you a letter in the mail. Like that's, that's borderline harassment. There's a reason why I didn't come back. And I'm like, I don't need you to send me all of these messages. I like, I don't, I don't need your help. Goodbye. Please don't call again. Lose my number. All <laughs> right. Seriously, lose whatever. I think that goes back to them hounding patients and and just beating you down until you succumb and agree to what they want you to do. And that's really against their entire kind of integrity, right? Like their whole job is to give you individualized care that's based on things that are aligned with you, not necessarily a one size fits all approach. And it, it really does start prenatally. It really does start in your prenatal appointments where everything is cookie cutter. So if you think you're going into the hospital to have an individualized birth, you're really mistaken. Like you, you can take the things that you're seeing in your prenatal care and they are applicable and intensified in labor. All right. So Sarah, you touched on something that I want to circle back to an, another thing is you're not sick when you go into the hospital for labor, right? Everybody else goes to the hospital because they're sick. And that goes back to you saying like, I'm here. I need to do something. I need to intervene. I'm going to make you better. That's not why you're at the hospital. Mm-hmm. About 10% of people are going to need medical care and like have high risk pregnancies that require, you know, medical professionals to actually intervene and manage them. But for the most part, we want to be hands off. And I think that is a place that so many people miss is that you're not going to the hospital because you need help. You're going to the hospital to be in close proximity to medical professionals if you need help. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, I totally agree. I think that's been lost in the last hundred years since OBs kind of decided they were going to take everything over. Um, and women or, I mean, there's a, I think it starts well before prenatal care, actually. I think it starts our compliance as, as women starts long before that when we're children, when we're small and we're told, don't be too loud. Don't, uh, don't be too bossy. Don't be, you know, nobody likes a a girl who acts like they're in charge all the time. And we're told to make ourselves small and not be, you know, not be a big part of the scene. Don't make a scene, you know? And so when it comes to the prenatal care and they're like, we're just going to do this, 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 and this, it's for everybody. 
And if you, you're worried about, if women tell me they don't want their doctor to not like them. I'm like, why do you care? Do you think that this person, this person works for you? And do you think that this person goes home and they're like, I don't think my patient likes me. No, they're, they don't remember you next week. You know, they, they don't, it's their job to take care of you, but they're not going to remember you next week. And what happens to you is not going to affect them. Like it's going to affect you. Um, it's just, it's maddening really. Well, there's that whole idea of this is your birth that will follow you for the rest of your life. And it's just right. another Wednesday in the office for right. your OB, right? I right. think it's all just in, uh, it's a difference in perspective, which I think is a great place to wrap up here. You know, at the end of the day, your OB prioritizes and considers success as an alive parent and an alive baby. And I think for many of you out there, that's the bare minimum. For Sarah and I, that is the bare minimum. Alive shouldn't even be a question of if that's going to be part of your story, right? You should be able to walk away, not traumatized, feeling heard and supported, having chosen everything for yourself and and really felt the embrace of the people around you throughout your birth. So Sarah, my very last question is, Tell us how your birth ended. Who was there? How was it? What was that moment like when you realized, holy shit, we did it? Yeah, um, it was just my husband. My son, who was then two, was there for a little bit of it. But there came a point where, like, he was so he was so precious. We had a birth pool, and I was in it, and he was coming up by the side and putting water on my arm and trying to hold my hand through contractions. And it was really cute for a while until it wasn't because I wanted everybody to just be away from me. Uh, so he went and stayed over a friend's house that night. Uh, so when it came to most of my labor and the birth, uh, it was just me and my husband. And he was like, uh, is there anything I can do? And I was like, no, there's a, like, if I be a sandwich or something, I'll tell you, but there's literally nothing you can do. I, I have to go through this on my own. And so honestly, it was, uh, I would say the labor was the best out of the three births that I've had because I wasn't, I went into it just not even thinking about it. Um, it just like, it was another Wednesday and I went into labor and it was a natural part of life. And I took my son to Trader Joe's in the pet store and, um, you know, my husband worked all day and I told him, don't worry, it's going to be a while. And he came home, we went to sleep and I labored all night. And then my son went to his friends the next day and he was born, our second son was born at like 11 o'clock at night. And it was very intense, but I, not once did I think I couldn't do it. Not once was I worried. Not once was I second guessing myself. There was nobody there to make me feel like I couldn't do it. My body took over. My brain was quiet and I just gave birth like any other mammal does. And I, you know, what birthed him into the pool. I had fetal ejection reflex, which for those who don't know is it's like vomiting, except a baby comes out the other end, your body contracts so hard and it pushes the baby out. Um, and it usually happens in births that are undisturbed where you feel really safe. I had it with both of my, my second and my third and my third, I did have midwives, but the reason I chose to have midwives with my third was because I wanted to experience a different type of care, which night and day. Um, and 
also the cleanup. <laughs> the cleanup and uh, so my husband had to clean up the pool and all that the first time, which is fine. But, you know, it's nice for him not to have to do that and to be able to like help me and relax the baby and stuff. So they did the cleanup and just it gave me a little more peace of mind of not having to be in my clinical brain while also giving birth because I was the one that did all the research and knew all the things to watch for and what to do. Uh, and I just, I didn't want to have to think about it. So uh, that's why I had them there. And they were so hands-off. They were basically, the birth was the same, except someone cleaned up and made me food afterwards because they just sat off to the side. Um, so for me, if I had another, I would choose those same midwives. I just need people who are really hands-off, like all, all the time. That's so dreamy. I think there's so many people out there listening who are like, man, I want that. And the truth is you can have that. The people who have unassisted births are some of the most intelligent and educated and well-researched people out there. You guys, they know absolutely the risks that are involved in unassisted birth. And they are actively choosing that over the risks that come with the hospital or birthing within the system. You guys, there are risk with everything, you know that there's no choice that comes without risk. And so you have to, you have to weigh them. Are the risks of unassisted birth at your home better or worse for you than the risks that come along with birthing inside of the U.S. system? Oh my gosh, Sarah, thank you so much for being here with us today. This was awesome. Thanks so much for sharing your story. I love normalizing the normal parts of labor. I hope that people listening today walk away with a new perspective of unassisted birth. I hope that they walk away with solid places where they can start to research their own birth. And I hope that if you're out there wondering if there's another way for you to have your baby outside of the system that maybe has messed you up like it's messed up a lot of us, there are other answers. You do have options. Sarah, if people wanted to ask you more about your story or follow you on uh, Birth Uprising or learn about your other birth stories, how can they do that? How do they find you? So I am Birth Uprising on Instagram. That's where I am most of the time. Um, I do have a Facebook page, same name. I really just repost stuff. So it's not just go to Instagram. I have a website, birthuprising.com, and I have, um, I'm adding all the time things that I offer um, to people. So I do one-on-one sessions for people that are trying to figure out what they want or to get a partner on board or to just kind of narrow down what's best for them. Uh, I'm working on a workbook for the same reason to figure out what's, what's right for you. It's, it should be, like you said, individualized care and people aren't getting that. So it'll have all the questions to ask so that you can find out what's right for you. And I tell you nothing about what's right for you because it's not my business. So you figure all that out. Um, and there's a couple other things on there too, jewelry and, and stuff because I like to make art. Um, but yeah, usually Instagram. If someone wants to contact me, that's the best way. I try to get to all my DMs, but you know, I have three kids, like I said. So. And she's got these wonderful uh, prints, you guys, of different birth uh, depictions, different birth scenes. Um, also normalizing the normal parts of labor. Yeah. 
Guys, thanks for hanging out with us today. This has been so much fun. I'm a big fan of unassisted birth. If that is what you choose for yourself and you think that is the best for you and your baby, let's do it. This is something that humans have been doing for ages and ages. And I would be remiss if I let you off the hook without reminding you that the things that people used to die from in labor are no longer a concern. Infection, long labors, these are things that we are able to manage in today world. So if you have people out there who are scaring you about the somethings, I hope that you will share this podcast with them because Sarah did a wonderful job of dispelling what if something happens in your unassisted birth. All right. Until next time, you can check us out on YouTube. If you're listening to us on the podcast, you're listening to us on YouTube. We'll see you on the podcast and everyone can meet us over on Instagram at Tranquility by Hee. See you next time, y'all. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident. Hey there, just a friendly reminder that nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hehe and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.